I do have a bigger mission. And the bigger mission is that as laboratory people, whether we're a pathologist or, or uh, laboratorians, we need to step out of our boundary. We need to be more recognized for what we do because we definitely are undervalued. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Advocating for the field is one of the main reasons that I do this podcast every week, and I know it's a big concern for the guests as well. Today's guest has a much bigger idea for how to accomplish this goal. Dr. Alan Wu is a professor of laboratory medicine and director of clinical chemistry, toxicology, and pharmacogenomics. He's also the author of six books, and today we'll talk about an idea he's developing with the books that could massively raise awareness about laboratory medicine. All right, here's Dr. Alan Wu. I know you majored in biology and chemistry, and you had an interest in clinical chemistry. So I'm curious about that. Where did that interest in clinical chemistry come from? Well, when I was a senior in college, I did a uh, senior research project under a chemistry professor who um, was doing clinical chemistry research. So that's how I got started in uh, in the field. And then I really was at a crossroads of either going to medical school or graduate school. And he asked me a, uh, an important question. He said, if you want to treat patients, then you have to have an MD and that's pretty much where you need to go. But if you want to use science to help patients, then you don't need an MD degree. A lot of clinical science is done by PhDs. And um, I know where you can go. And he headed me towards the University of Illinois, where he went to school some 20 years earlier. His major advisor was still there and taking on graduate students. And uh, I became one of his. Had you heard about laboratory medicine prior to that? Because a lot of the people that I talk to that are in the laboratory medicine field, uh, clinical medicine, like they hadn't heard about it or they heard about it by accident or they happened to know somebody uh, who, who worked in the field. What, what was that like for you? Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. Most people don't know what lab medicine or clinical chemistry is when they are in undergraduate school and and their first um, exposure would be in medical school. In terms of um, my direction, it would be even less people would know because there is no medical school curriculum in graduate school usually. And so most of the people that I've trained in the many years that I've been in the field didn't know about uh, lab medicine until well into their graduate career. And even toward the end, I had the singular advantage of knowing even before graduate school. Now, sorry. So you told us how you ended up going to uh, University of Illinois. Uh, now, for this, then, you were studying analytical chemistry. True. I was told by my advisor that it, even though you want to do clinical chemistry research, you have to have tools and you have to have a specialty. And nobody really gets a graduate degree in clinical chemistry. The next logical step is to do a postdoctoral fellowship. And so I knew from day one that I had to master a field. It could have been analytical. It could have been medicinal chemistry or even pharmacy. But then in order to understand what a lab medicine person does, they would have to do a, a postdoctoral fellowship, which is what I did after graduate school. Okay. So at this point, you had, you had intended to go into uh, the clinical medicine, lab, laboratory medicine, right? That's correct. As many other people in his group went on and doing, so many of my graduate student colleagues became clinical chemists after they finished. And I pretty much followed that route. Now, I want, want to talk about your experience during your postdoctoral training and specifically the mentors that you had at the time. And reading your bio, it says that you had four kind of major mentors. And 
I like to talk about mentors on the podcast because I think it's important for people just entering the field to understand the importance of, of finding a mentor and how those people can help steer your educational path and your career. So can we can we talk about the mentors that you had at that time? Absolutely. The two principal mentors were George Bowers and Robert McComb. And uh, they had been in the field as laboratory medicine, clinical chemistry specialists for 20-some years before I arrived. And they had their own clinical chemistry postdoc program for those many years and had graduated many people that uh, ended up assuming major roles in academic medical centers. Uh, Their claim to fame was that they developed the first practical assay for alkaline phosphatase, the enzyme assay that we use today, is sometimes known as the Bowers and McComb method. So I really learned my, oh. uh, you know, my grassroots from them, my enzymology and, and lab medicine through Bowers and McComb. Okay, I see. Now, there were there were two others uh, also, so I, uh, Robert Burnett and Robert Moore. What was kind of their role? Yeah, so there were four people that were in my program. They were younger um, by about 20 years. And uh, when I graduated and left, 10 years later, Bowers and McComb um, retired within a year of each other. And they asked me to apply for one of their positions. I did. I got the job. And the other two people that were... Um, my mentors became my associates. So it's sort of like goes around, comes around. I, w- I was their student and then I became um, their uh, their superior. Is this the time that you be- became interested in teaching when you, when you took that position? Well, I've always been interested in teaching. Even as an undergraduate, as a senior, I was a teaching assistant for the introductory chemistry program. Uh, I should say the introductory chemistry course, which I had taken myself three years earlier. So my interest in teaching began as an undergraduate. And then when I went to graduate school, rather than get funded by research grants, I was funded by teaching responsibilities. I was a TA. Okay, I see. And then teaching is something that you still do to this day, isn't it? Absolutely. I have... uh, residents and pathology that I have taught every month uh, for my entire career. Um, I have postdoctoral fellows. I have graduated 30 or so postdoctoral fellows. And then a handful of graduate students. Um, As I mentioned, clinical chemistry isn't really taught at the graduate level. It's really at the postdoctoral and um, postmedical degree level. Now, I want to talk about uh, toxicology because this became a major interest for you. When did that start happening? When did you become interested in toxicology? Well, uh, when I was a graduate student, uh, I had considered doing a project, my thesis project on mass spectrometry. I ended up not selecting that project, but that really got me interested in the technology. And then when I went to postdoctoral fellowship, I had more access to mass spectrometry, and that really led me to toxicology because, at least back then, this was a very novel tool, a very powerful tool, especially for toxicology. At that time, not so much for the other areas of clinical pathology, although we now know today that mass spectrometry has integrated into many different subfields or specialties of pathology. So these days you're at University of California, San Francisco, and you're director of clinical chemistry, toxicology, and pharmacogenomics. Can you kind of tell me about that role? Like what is sort of your, I, I don't want to say typical day, but kind of what what, what is sort of your, your daily uh, routine in that role? It would be typical of other um, people in my position, professors, of lab medicine at a academic medical center. It's a combination of administrative work in terms of um, the staff that report to me, the supervisors and the specialists, 
There is a teaching component, as I mentioned, postdoctoral fellows, graduate students, residents. We also have a clinical lab scientist program, so I'm involved with education there. And then clinical research, I would call translational research, where I'm not doing basic science work. I'm not competing for NIH grants. I don't do animal work. I'm not looking to discover new pathways or new gene associations. I take what is learned by others and determine whether or not that knowledge has immediate applications to diagnosis or disease monitoring or prognosis within the clinical laboratory. So my work is heavily translational in nature. We're involved with clinical trials. Much of my work is sponsored by the in vitro diagnostics companies, as well as instrument companies. And I'm sort of the the last step before a company can get their product or instrument FDA cleared for clinical use. And then once that product or instrument is cleared, then it would become my responsibility as laboratory director to determine if this particular test or instrument is something that we need to do and use for our lab to help our patients. So in that way, I feel like I'm on the cutting edge of uh, where the field is headed. Okay, yeah, that, that sounds like that's, that would be pretty exciting to be involved with that. How do you actually, like you said, you determine if you need to use that particular test or instrument? How, how do you do that? Well, it always comes back to, does it meet a unmet medical need? And that question cannot be answered in a vacuum. All of my studies, or I should say most of my studies, involve some clinical component, uh, some key opinion leader or some leader in the discipline that that test might be uh, involved with. And so there's discussions with my colleagues as to whether or not this is something that we should be doing. So in the field of toxicology, for example, um, I am a member of the California Poison Control Center, a medical advisory committee, and we talk about cases and and tools and, and unmet medical needs, and and uh, I try to match what they need with what the industry can provide. So I'm sort of the middleman. Okay, I see. Yeah, that's that sounds really interesting. All right. So throughout your career, I mean, you've written multiple textbooks on on various subjects, but then in 2014, you you tried your hand at writing a book. In fact, you wrote a series of six books so far. So I want to uh, kind of go to the the origin of that. So first of all, did you always enjoy writing? Was this like a, a passion for you that you finally got to uh, develop or, or how did that happen? Well, there's two kinds of writing. There is science and medical writing. And uh-huh. that is really part of my academic requirements in order to be promoted. You have to have academic productivity in the form of research uh, studies and publications, case reports, book uh, book chapters. And so I can't say that I was uh, interested in writing at the beginning of my career, but it was a necessity. I recognize that nobody gets promoted without having an academic record. So I spent much of the first 35 years of my profession honing in on that skill. Very different, however, from the books that I've written. That came along much later as I begin to realize that I do enjoy writing and that in even in my research studies, I'm trying to tell a story, a story of why this particular device or our test is useful clinically and therefore I have to put together a medical scenario as to how and where that could be used. Also, as part of my research writing, I did write a number of case reports. Case reports are particularly important in toxicology because due to the nature of the subject, we cannot justify 
conducting randomized clinical trials. You know, who's going to volunteer to take a poison? So much of the dissemination of toxicology in the literature is, in fact, case reports. This is what we saw at the poison center or at my hospital. This is what we did. This is how this information might get used in the future by somebody else who encounters a similar set of conditions. And uh, that is lends itself, therefore, to the case report format. So my first paperback book was, in fact, reflecting on my experience in the toxicology world. It is actually still my bestseller. These are all based on real cases that either I have been involved with or peripherally been involved with, where I describe the salient uh, features of the medical case, the clinical laboratory involvement of the medical case, and its conclusion. Okay, so the format then that kind of came from writing case reports, I mean, I guess I've never thought of it this way, but a case report is basically kind of telling a story, and that's kind of the format you you tried to adopt. Is that is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yes, you are, uh, except that in a case report, the objective is medical knowledge or scientific knowledge, telling a story to reach the conclusions of the science or medicine. In terms of writing for popular audiences, for the people who are not in the profession, who are not trained, there are several things that have to change. First of all, you can't assume that they have the background knowledge that uh, we do. The science, however, no longer becomes the major subject item. We're not interested in how the science went. We're interested more so in what happened to the patient. And that makes it a little bit more difficult because, number one, we have privacy laws. We cannot disclose medical information that somebody might recognize as being theirs. And secondly, as laboratory personnel, we don't always have the backstory. We don't always know what the social history is. And even if we do know the social history, as I say, we have to change it for privacy purposes. So this becomes somewhat fictitious because of the privacy issues and because the intent is to tell a human story and therefore surround it with human elements that could have happened, but not necessarily did in this particular case, with the objective that it will be more um, popular amongst a lay audience. Was it difficult to, uh, because you're basically changing a writing style from being a scientific writer to, to being, like you said, writing for a popular audience, was it difficult for you to do that? Did it take some practice? Amazingly, no. Uh, I was uh, quite uh, surprised that it was quite easy for me, partly because it. Uh, <clears throat> so when you write scientifically, you have to adhere to rigors. You have to document statements with literature review or literature citations. Uh, you have to be very careful that you don't over interpret or over conclude. Uh, a uh, observation because it could be harmful to somebody else. When it comes to writing short stories, I didn't have any of those constraints. I can say whatever I want. I could say that the person was this or that or had these dreams or that dream. And and uh, it becomes um, much easier, actually. Okay, I see. Yeah, you can. It, it's a bit more. Uh, liberating, I guess, as as an author that way. Did you, you know, study any other authors to kind of develop this style? I mean, some of uh, some of your work reminds me a bit of like Michael Crichton and things like that. Did you did you do anything like that? Well, I too was a big fan. I read every one of his books uh-huh. um, before he died. Obviously, there's nothing new, but uh, most right. of his books um, were things that I read uh, years ago. Not recently, but certainly that haven't had an influence. Um, and I did re- read 
some medical mysteries, um, but um, I can't say that I was uh, influenced by any one particular author. All right. Now, you mentioned earlier the books are partially based on on real events, or they're based on they're really based on real events, and just some of the details are changed. I guess is a better way to put that. So, can we kind of go through what is your writing process like? How do you decide? Okay, this is the kind of case I'm going to use as a story, and then how do you develop that into a story? Well, with any writing, there has to be some type of interest in it. It can't just be dialogue. It can't just be events that are um, recorded. Nobody would find that of any interest. So the things that I write about have an unexpected ending or unexpected twist of science or human nature that compels somebody to read more. Um, And sometimes those endings are fictitious and sometimes they are based on what really happened. And now when you're trying to, the the fictitious endings, how, how do you come up with those? Because some of them are, are little, they're a little bit unusual sometimes. How, how, how do you, how do you uh, uh, what's the process for developing that? It's hard to explain. Okay. Sometimes when I write, I don't know where I'm going with the story and things just hit me while I'm writing. And it's, Remarkable. I know other people have described that before. I never thought that that would happen to me. But um, as I'm reading and writing, sometimes um, things come to me. Now, there is still a lot of background work that I need to do to be sure that at least the science and the medicine part are accurate because I don't want to portray things that we don't actually do or medicine actually doesn't do. They don't see the cases in the same way. I wanted to be sure that that part was accurate, but everything else, the social history, the outcomes, uh, the interactions between the patient and the doctor, for which I don't really know what happens all the time, and the interactions between the doctor and myself, which I do know, uh, sometimes they're embellished. Sometimes I step out of my my um, boundaries as a laboratory director and become more involved with the medical case than would be typical. So let's talk about the target audience for these books, because I've heard you, I heard you say, uh, and it was, I think it was on a different podcast. And you said that the target audience isn't for, you know, people like us, people in lab medicine. It's for people that may not know about the field. Why did you decide to focus on that? Well, Don't get me wrong, the people who are reading my stuff are, in fact, our profession. They are the ones that have supported my work and have uh, been uh, big fans of it because they themselves can tell the same types of stories. They live it day to day. You, You do, too, I'm sure. You have compelling cases that you've been involved with. So it's certainly a comfort factor. That um, mm-hmm. I'm one of you. I'm. I've done the same thing as everybody else in the laboratory, but I do have a bigger mission, and the bigger mission is that as laboratory people, whether we're pathologists or or uh, laboratorians, we need to step out of our boundary. We need to be more recognized for what we do because we definitely are undervalued, and that has led to legislation that is going on as we speak, literally. There is a bill that's being heard in the Senate, the Valid Act, which will threaten, again, the things that we do, the things that we think are right with lab-developed tests and getting FDA approval for LDTs is uh, ludicrous to me. And, And part of this is because we have administrators and legislators who don't have an idea of what we do and and don't appreciate what we do. They only know regulations and they think that they're doing the right thing by, by putting in these acts when I believe that um, they are going to be more harmful than helpful. What we need is um, support and recognition. We don't need more legislation and and more um, of our hands tied. 
And so how do you go about um, changing the dynamic of our profession? We have done a, an excellent job of promoting to ourselves. I think most of the people in our field want to be there, believe that they're doing good and, and are, in fact, doing good and are comfortable with that. They, they go home at night. You're at home right now. I'm at home right now. And we don't have the same negative feeling about our profession that other people do. You know, bankers might not like to be bankers. And I don't know. So maybe lawyers don't think that they should be lawyers. But the mm -hmm. people in our field believe that they're doing something important. The problem is that we're the only ones that know this, that nobody else appreciates us. And this is why we have PAMA. This is why we have these acts that are working against us. And I'm hoping to change that. Yeah, it seems uh, it's it's astounding to me that after, you know, two years of of the COVID pandemic and the spotlight being on laboratory medicine that entire time and lab testing and everybody was talking about it and thought they knew what they were talking about as far as lab testing, how we're still unknown like that. That, that doesn't, I, I don't understand how it's still like that. So I wrote a uh, editorial to two local newspapers here okay. in um, April of 2020, just uh, during the lockdown. And I basically said that um, the PAMA legislation probably wasn't a good idea because we're in this pickle of not having resources, not having laboratory tests, not having supply because of PAMA, because the fat was cut out of the budget, of our budget. We no longer had surplus. We no longer have the ability to plan for catastrophe. And what was the end result of that? The end result is tens of thousands of deaths and, and uh, people's lives totally disrupted. Now, you know, I think all of that might have happened anyway, but not in the way that it did. And it took six months or a year to climb out from under it. And we're still obviously not out of it, out of it yet, uh, although things are better now than they were two years ago. And the uh, newspapers wouldn't publish it. Either one of them. They said, well, we don't really care about the laboratory. This editorial is going nowhere. It's all self-serving because you're in the profession. And they refused to publish it. Wow, that's ridiculous. I, okay. Getting back to the books. And so it seems like then your goal was kind of to take matters into your own hands and advocate for the laboratory yourself. Is that is that sound accurate? Yes. Um, so, you know, our profession is uh, doing what the profession thinks it needs to do. And I have supported it every step of the way. We have legislative liaisons. We have members who ha appear in front of Congress, talk to um, senators and House of Representatives, have pushed for this or that. But it's just a tip of the iceberg or just scratching the surface of, of really what needs to be done because we're still here. We're still in this um, dilemma, despite the efforts, well-meaning efforts of our colleagues. And so for me, there is another approach, um, and that's direct to the public, direct to consumer, if you will, because the legislator, the legislative angle has not worked. And so how do you reach a mass audience? It, it is not through the publication of my books, because these are self-published. The only people that are reading them, as I mentioned, are our colleagues. The problem is I don't have an, a literary agent. I'm not pushed by any major publication house. And no matter how good it is, and that's obviously very subjective, it's never going to make anybody's bestsellers list. And so if nobody knows about it, you know, even Amazon, the mortar, brick and mortar stores that are cropping up won't cover, won't carry my books. I mean, they're publishing it and I get good reviews, but they won't carry my books. 
So these, this is this has been a failure. If, if writing my books was to promote the value of the profession, I have failed. And so mm. what becomes the next step? This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Alan Wu. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need. Comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, so I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Alan Wu on the People of Pathology podcast. And I saw an article about this next step. And this was, so you have, you have a plan to create uh, a television show that in, in the article, it says you're, you want to highlight the unsung heroes of the medical field, which I assume has to mean laboratorians, right? That's correct. So the model is crime scene investigation. So prior to CSI, all the shows about crime featured detectives and lawyers. There were no science at all. The investigations of the cases, the evidence brought to court, were superficial. And when CSI launched, which was some 18 years ago, that changed everything. Now the science is forefront. The main protagonists are the crime scene investigators. The secondary characters are the detectives, the um, policemen, and the attorneys, and the district attorneys. Uh, I want to create a show along those exact same lines, where the main protagonists are the laboratory directors and laboratory personnel, the clinical laboratory scientists, and the secondary characters in this show are the doctors and the nurses, and even uh, lawyers, because some of the cases that I write about do end up in court. And so in CSI every week, there's somebody who gets killed or are harmed, there are suspects, and then the, the lab solves the mystery, and the crime is um, concluded, or the whodunit has, uh, has been revealed. In my proposal, the patients change from week to week. They aren't victims of crime, but they suffer from medical issues. And the laboratory provides the answers so that at the end of the episode, it's not who done it, it's who lives and who dies and why. I think that that is a compelling format. And I have looked and there is nothing just like this show. Some people have said, well, house is a little bit like this. It's a lot of diagnosis. And that's very true. Gray's Anatomy, some diagnostic uh, programs. Mm -hmm. But none of them feature a clinical laboratory and none of them are real. Doctors don't come to my lab and discover all the secrets that they need to know on their patients. That's a, This is not real. Just like crime scene investigation was not real prior to the onset of that show. Yeah, that's true. You know, and you know, reading your books, I mean, it, the way that they're formatted, that they're, you know, they're multiple short stories in each book. I mean, it's, it's almost like they're set up to be a sort of a TV show because they're, you know, separate episodes for each story. Was that something you had kind of always had in the back of your mind as you were writing these books? Like I could turn this into a TV show someday. No, no. Originally it was just a collection of stories that were unrelated. Originally, I had a uh, character that was the lab director, but then I got some professional advice 
from an author. And he told me that change it to the first person, change it so that it's you and that you're doing this and it's your focus. And I thought that that was an excellent idea, but it doesn't lend itself to a television program unless I, I guess there's a handful of TV programs where there's a narrator. The narrator describes everything. And from show to show, it's the same person. You don't see too many shows like that. And, and so what I've had to do is try to put together a program where there is recurring characters, different individuals that, that I talk about, but they're the same. I, I need to have a toxicologist, a microbiologist, a hematologist, just like what we have in the real world here, a blood bank person. I have to have a recurring doctor. Maybe he's an emergency department doctor, or maybe it's an ICU doctor. And um, and these people have to grow over time, that they can't just be the same person from episode one to episode five to season one to season three, that there has to be an arc. There has to be character development, or else it is just an anthology. Now, maybe that needs to be an anthology. But uh, Black Mirror, I'm sure you've probably seen that program. Maybe you know sure. Twilight Zone. Yep. No two episodes are the same. They're not uh, recurring. And you have a narrator. And then at the end, there's some comments about you know what happened to this or that. And you've read my stories and you've seen the comments that I write at the end of every story. It's sort of a, this is a real happening or this is why you should pay attention to these concepts. Uh-huh. could have done that. Uh, I still might do that. But I'm not looking for a forensic files program. I'm sure you're familiar with that show, too. Yes. It's very uh, cut and dry. It's a lot of forensic pathology and sometimes toxicology. And uh, they try to, in between uh, the storyline, so-and-so was living in somewhere in you know, and, and try to put some personal history to it, but uh, um, no recurrence. And that is not as compelling as crime scene investigation, where you did have an investment in the principal characters. And that's why it was on for so many years, on for so long that they ended up changing the principal characters multiple times because the show just uh, became too popular. This is what I want. I want my characters to um, evolve and to so that the audience will be invested in them. Okay. So it's, it, it's difficult to kind of break into the book publishing world and, and to get any sort of popularity there. I have to think it's even more difficult to get into television. Yeah. Like how far, how, how, how are you, how are you doing this? Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely correct in some ways and in other ways, maybe not uh, certainly 10 years ago, you had four television stations and then PBS, and um, then it would have been really impossible. But yeah. at least today, we have probably 20 or so different outlets, and uh, they all are, or at least they claim to be asking for unique content. So I think I have unique content. I have many more choices to go to. Still, however, it's always about finding the right person who will answer your phone call, respond to your email, you know, open that letter. Because I'm sure that they're always being inundated by ideas, by scripts, by concepts. And so I have a couple of things going for me. Number one, unlike a lot of these creators, I have credibility. You know, the person who um, proposed crime scene investigator uh, investigation, CSI, was neither a cop nor a CSI scientist or a lawyer. He just had a great idea and he parlayed that into a television program. I have been a professor for 40 years and have over 500 peer reviewed publications. So if anybody does open up my letter, they can see that. I have credentials. So that's number one. Number two, I begun to invest in my idea. I have hired a publicist. I have 
a person who is who's put put together a pitch proposal. I have another person who is writing a script for my Mind Portal book, which I haven't talked about yet. And then I have hired a professor of um, cinematic arts and writing to refine my pitch deck. So my initial pitch deck that I hired someone to produce was four pages. This uh, new pitch deck will detail the characters involved, what their arc is. The show Bible will contain episodes, the first 10 episodes in season one, and then two other seasons and how they will change from season one. You know, it's it's a lot of speculation, but you got to put something in paper. And they are based on my stories. They are based on what I've already written. But now I need to connect them. I need to say, well, how do you go from episode one to episode two? And um, I've also had to create a recurring antagonist that you want to hate and you want to see how evil this person could be. You know, you mentioned the the connecting the episodes together. So, so how do you do that? The the principal characters need to be involved with the story writing. That uh, I don't talk much about my colleagues in my book chapters. It's always about the patients and the medical conditions. Now I talk about what this person is doing and write that person into the story. Sometimes it's something that bad that happens to them or a family member. They become patients. Or because we live in this uh, very complex medical world where there is mistakes that happen, medical errors, um, sometimes we create them. Sometimes the information that we create is misinterpreted. This is sort of the bad side of medicine. But it has to be told as well. And so if it's something that the lab does wrong, then um, what is the consequences? What is the arc of that person? How does that person learn or or maybe doesn't learn? And how does that affect him or her? Okay. Um, I mean, this is an exciting project. I mean, uh, you know, this could really raise awareness for the lab a lot more than probably anything else that's ever been done. So you, you said you've had proposals out there. I mean, is there interest? I, I imagine you can't say too much about it, but what kind of response are you getting? Well, I'm not there yet. So um, okay. I have um, created this uh, pitch deck, but it hasn't been distributed yet. Um, I'm enhancing this with the help of my, uh, my coach, if you will. Um, but my plan actually is to try to get a movie first to at least get some credibility of myself as a creator and writer and then morph into this much bigger venture of a television show. You know, maybe a movie could be the television show, but I'm taking a slightly different approach. I'm using Mind Portal as my movie script. All right, let, let's talk about Mind Portal then. So this was your fifth book, and it's similar to the others, but it's a little different because it has a science fiction aspect to it and kind of a time travel aspect as well. First, let's talk about the book, and then we'll get into how you're trying to v- develop it into a movie. So because it's different, was this kind of a writing experiment for you, or in it, in, was the intention to appeal to maybe a the, the science fiction audience, kind of a wider audience? Like, what was the what was the idea behind this one? Yeah, no. Originally, I didn't think I had enough, enough content for a entire book or storyline. That I wrote okay. a couple of stories that I incorporated into my other books, but then it sort of took off. It's sort of like, well, what about this person? What about that person? Or how did this happen? Or how did that happen? So the very first story was H- Hubert Humphrey. Of course, you know he was the senator in um, Minnesota, ran for president um, yeah. against Nixon. And uh, I read a uh, scientific article maybe 10 years ago that he had bladder cancer at the time that he was running for office, but nobody knew it. And what happened was that he had some 
had a biopsy, a bladder biopsy done, and Walter Reed um, Naval Hospital, who did it at the time, still had his tissue. And with um, with the permission of his widow, 20 years later, they went back into that tissue and they found a a, um, a, a P53 mutation that uh, was uh, sort of the uh, promoter of the bladder cancer that had they known in 1968 what they knew now in 1998, that uh, he probably would not have run for office and things would have been very different if the result of a single laboratory test that we know today was applying to something back in 1968 could have changed the entire politics of the United States. You know, maybe uh, Nixon doesn't win. Maybe there's another candidate. Maybe the Democratic, the Democratic convention in Chicago never happens. There's just so many different storylines that mm-hmm. I write about uh, because of this pure speculation. And then I found out that there is a University of Maryland historic CPC program that's held every year where they invite medical historians and they talk about alternate theories of cause of death of prominent people, uh, politicians or generals or philosophers. And I found a lot of fodder there too because I learned about things like uh, FDR maybe didn't have polio and um, Stonewall Jackson maybe had a pulmonary emboli instead of pneumonia, as the historians say. And so I started reading those synopses, digging out the original literature that that they uh, cited, and then took it the next step. So they don't take it the next step. This is not science fiction. This is what we think is alternate history retold. I am creating a character who is able to go back into time and undo what um, these people died of. And by having them survive, their arc and their contributions to the world change completely to the point where, in some cases, the world that we know today doesn't exist. See, I, I love this kind of stuff that, that where there's like, it's an alternate history. There's been a couple of really interesting shows lately where like, I forget one of one of them, I think was called like man in a high castle or some, something like that. It was based on a book, but it was about when, if the Axis powers had won world war two and there was another show. I don't even remember the name of it. It was, it was some, it was a date, I believe, but it was a guy who went back in time and actually stopped uh, John F. Kennedy. He, he stopped, stopped that shooting. So I, I like this kind of stuff, like where it's in, it's an alternate history and what could have happened, like like you say. So that that's definitely a movie that I would watch. Well, so the difference between those two, and I, I know both of those uh, citations you, that you made up, I've seen both of those shows um, okay. in the TV series. The difference, though, is that I still hold back the the truths of laboratory medicine that it all focus first on laboratory medicine. Because this is what I know, and this is my expertise. I'm not speculating on the basis of fantasy. I'm speculating on the basis of what historians believe to be real medical uh, facts. So the history is accurate. The medicine is accurate. The only thing that's fantasy is that obviously we don't have the ability to go back into time. So let me give you an example here. In 1921, FDR was swimming in the pool somewhere up north, and he comes out of the pool, uh, the lake, I should say, and he he becomes paralyzed. And his doctor sees him, and and, uh, they naturally think it's polio because that was really becoming endemic at the time. And he becomes permanently paralyzed, and the rest is history. Okay, but what modern historians are saying is that he could have had Guillain-Barre, which is an autoimmune disease. And so mm-hmm. here's where lab medicine can can change the future of the, of just this one man. Um, my title character goes into the mind, so he doesn't time travel, but he implants an idea into FDR's doctor's brain, and he teaches him about spinal fluid proteins. Now, I did my history. We were doing spinal fluid testing. Back in 1921, so this is not far-fetched. 
So he convinces FDR's doctor, do a spinal tap, run a CSF protein, and then he teaches them if it's high, it's an autoimmune disease. If it's low, it's polio. And so he does it. It comes out high. And then my title character says, you need to contact this French doctor. His name is Georges Guillaume, and he existed in 1921. He had already coined the Guillaume-Barre syndrome by 1921. We're talking Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a man of economic means. It is entirely plausible that he could say, I'm going to contact this guy, have him come over and, you know, treat me. And he would have come, uh, my belief, you know. And and what would you have done differently if it had been Guillain-Barre versus polio? Well, what we do today, we do exchange transfusions. We do IVG therapy. Of course, we weren't doing IVG therapy back then, but they were experimenting and they did know about HBO blood types in 1921. And they could have further developed transfusion medicine and, and treated his antibody excesses to the extent that he lives beyond the, toward the end of the Second World War. And, and then from that point, you know, I, I can do anything I want. If FDR is alive and, and maybe he doesn't drop the bomb, uh, the two bombs on Japan. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. All right. So then how do you take this and, and develop it into a movie? Okay, so I've hired a screenwriter uh, who is a um, – okay, so uh, I don't have unlimited means here. I'm not going to be able to to uh, um, invite somebody extremely notable. Right. This person has a few scripts that have been sold and that have been made into movies. Is does work for a talent agency. And so I'm, I have hopes that uh, this person not only will help me create this move, this uh, script, but promote it. And I've worked it out contractually that, uh, that she will, she will not only did I pay her, but she's going to, um, to, to get a cut of whatever gets sold. So there's motivation there. You know, it's uh, not just a payday, but it's a, a potential of having something sold under her name and my name and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and whatever profits that might bring. So she has, uh, created the storyline we've selected five chapters from my mind portal book the five chapters are jackie kennedy uh jackie robinson elvis presley there's a there's a a nazi by the name of um heinrich the so-called butcher of uh, prague and then stephen jobs so we create alternate timelines for uh, these five people for the sole purpose of trying to prevent my title character's daughter's death from acute myeloid leukemia. So these are desperations. He finds out that he has this capability. He's working with a colleague. They're planning on how we might be able to change medical history by by finding key people who, um, who could have helped. And each time they fail until the last person. Okay. That, wow. That sounds very uh, suspenseful. So it still has the focus on lab medicine throughout then, right? So she, she writes the human interest, you know, the relationships between uh, the, his colleague and his family. And, and uh, I write the, uh, the science behind it. I mean, I, I, I talk about um, tests for fetal lung maturity, which was the case for Jackie Robinson. I talk, I'm sorry, Jackie Kennedy. I talk about um, the onset of point-of-care testing for glucometers that could have saved Jackie Robinson. He died of diabetes. I talk about uh, IV therapy for uh, Elvis Presley, who, who had actually traumatic brain injury. He, he had um, um, hypopituitarism. This is not well-known, by the way, but uh, everyone says, oh, he died of a drug abuse and, and drug overdose as well. He was prescribed these because he had hypopituitarism due to a head injury. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, well, you know, I didn't either until I investigated it. The butcher of Prague uh, was um, assassinated. Um, He died of sepsis after a bomb exploded 
his uh, doctor refused to give him antibiotics. And uh, this is all true. The uh, Hitler's personal doctor was sent to try to save him. He tried to convince uh, Heinrich's um, doctor to use an antibiotic. Again, we're talking 1942. And he, and he wasn't, isn't able to convince him. And then so I implant an idea into his head, do an erythrocyte sedimentation rate. We were doing that test in 1942. That test has been around for a century. Simple test. Just look at sedimentation of red cells. He uses that test. He says, I can prove to you that Heinrich has sepsis. We'll do the test on you and me, and we're going to find a slow rate of uh, sedimentation, and we're going to do it on a fresh blood sample on, on Heinrich, and it's going to be fast, and it's going to show that he's inflamed, that he's septic. And based on that, he saves the life of the of Heinrich. And the idea was that maybe, because in, in the real history, uh, Hitler ended up leveling two nearby Czech towns because they're harboring the assassins. It, it killed thousands, it wiped out the entire towns. And again, this is uh, all true. And my thinking was, our thinking was that, uh, okay, well, maybe there was a doctor and maybe his son or grandson becomes key in the development of a treatment for AML or some type of therapy that we link that a little bit nebulously, but nevertheless, it's part of a storyline. And that, that fails too. And then it all comes down to Steve Jobs. This is really exciting. I, I will definitely uh, want to keep in touch with you and, and uh, hear how this goes along. Uh, Dr. Wu, is there is there anything that I haven't asked you so far that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. I mean, the objective here is to get something out there, and uh, but but it has to be lab medicine focused, and I have to have a hook. The Mind Portal book is, uh, again, 20, 25 stories along these lines, but uh, they're not interconnected, and and um, I think that people will tire of a weekly show of uh, transporting um, back into history. I think that speculative science fiction has a, a certain shelf life, and it uh, it might work for a little while. But um, I don't know if you heard of this movie called The Time Traveler's Wife. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. So they that was a movie, and then they recently, just this past season, made a TV show out of it, um, recurring characters and recurring situations and he meets himself in different time zones and it bombed um it was uh, heavily promoted but it wasn't well done and you know it was a good movie but it didn't translate to a tv show so my coaches have said this is a movie nothing more get it out there and then now you have credibility and go after the big fish i i don't i don't have any expectation that this fun sci-fi movie is going to change anything it's it's okay yeah i didn't know that we could do these things but so what the tv show is really the holy grail if i can't create the tv show then um then i've not accomplished anything okay i love it i love it these these are great projects i will definitely uh follow follow them along and i'll put i'll put links in the show notes for this episode to your books so that everybody who hasn't re- read them uh can check them out as well so i i appreciate your time tonight i appreciate learning more about you and about your books and the the proposed tv show and, and movies these are exciting so dr alan Wu, thank you very much well thank you for hosting me and uh i hope that uh, we can take this journey together Yeah, definitely. Great big thanks to Dr. Alan Wu. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. You're a big proponent of pathologists being more visible. And obviously that's something you do in your own work. Why was it important to show Dr. Robinson doing the same type of thing? I think that scene introduces um, to the reader a little bit about what pathologists do. And again, through all the books that I'm writing, I try to explain and show uh, what pathologists do in the real world. So I think, as you said, they should be more visible. I don't think that many patients or the public in general still understand uh, how pathologists contribute to their health care. It might be getting a little bit better, but it's not where I would like it to be. Mm-hmm. I think most what the public knows about pathologists. It's what they've seen on television or in film. And that's very one-dimensional. And it's not always accurate. 
So right. in that scene, you know, Lily sort of talks a little bit about all the things that pathologists can do. And, you know, you know that I, that line from the book where pathologists are the invisible thread in the weave of healthcare, they confirm the diagnosis for better or for worse. Yeah, Lily says that, you know, and hopefully at the end of reading Queen of All Poisons, the reader also has a better understanding of pathology in general. You can hear more from Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani as we talk about her first book, The Queen of All Poisons, in episode 35. Okay, so this was a pretty exciting conversation. The idea of having a movie or a television show or both about laboratory medicine, I mean, this could really be a game changer as far as advocacy and awareness for our field. Now, of course, as Dr. Wu said during the episode, I mean, it is, it is kind of a long shot and there is a quite a bit of work to do, but there is kind of a precedent there with CSI. So if Dr. Wu is successful with this, I mean, that could be amazing. And if you haven't already, you should check out his books. I've read them. They're really good. They're great stories. And you could always share them with someone who might be interested in the field of pathology and laboratory medicine. As a matter of fact, I have a nephew who has a birthday coming up, so he's going to be getting a copy of Mind Portal. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today, including links to all of Dr. Wu's books. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.